0: If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. Um, Over the... Last week, I finished a book that I started uh, about a month ago that I've read on and off for the last month. Uh, it's called The Captain Class by a guy named Sam Walker. There's a picture up on the screen. It's an interesting book. Um, it, I, I picked it up because I saw some good reviews about it online, about um, teams and teamwork and the hidden force that creates it. And a Sam starts, Sam Walker, who's a, a writer for the Wall Street Journal, starts with one of the most... Um, hotly debated questions for sports guys that has existed. And that is, who is, what is the greatest team that has ever been? What's the greatest team that's ever existed in sports? And so he works through data, he does all kinds of projections, and then he asks the question, okay, what made them different? What made these teams different from other teams? Why were they so great? And when he came down to the greatest team in the history of sports, he did not come up with a team in the last few years. I know this is shocking, after yesterday, Vanderbilt football was not the greatest team in history. Neither was Tennessee after that performance yesterday, right? The greatest team in history, he figured out, were the Boston Celtics in the late 50s through the 60s. Now, here's the thing about the Boston Celtics during that time. This is a picture from the kind of the middle of that era. From that time, they won 11 titles in 13 years. Eight titles in a row. They played 10 game sevens, deciding games in series, and won every one of them. Now, here's what was kind of unique about them. They did all that without having one of the top winning percentages of all time. And for seven of their 11 championships, they didn't even have a single person in the top 10 in scoring in the league. They were not the best defensive or offensive team any year in which they won a championship. And so he said, okay, well, if it's not a superstar score, or what is the factor that leads to all of this happening? And there's this interesting thing that happens that This team started their amazing run in 1957. And in game seven of the first championship they would win in 1957, they were playing the St. Louis Hawks. And at the end of the game, it was tied. Boston hit a layup, and when the St. Louis Hawks took the ball out, they threw a pass to half court to a guy named Jack Coleman. Y'all remember Jack. Oh yeah, you got him, right? And Jack Coleman caught the pass and began to dribble and looked around and realized all of Boston had celebrated their layup and nobody was defending him. He had a clear path to the basket with about 20 seconds left to score the game-winning, series-winning, championship-winning layup. And as he rose off of his left foot and put the right hand up with the ball in it and let it go, out of nowhere, a guy swatted it away. It was a rookie. And Bill Russell, we got a picture of Bill in the next one. Bill Russell was under his basket when the guy caught the ball at midcourt. And race, they figured out... If you would have sustained the pace he did from under the basket to the other basket in the Olympics, he would have won the 100-yard dash that year. He was huge doing that. And he swatted it away. They won 11 championships in Bill Russell's 13 years. The premise of the book is that the major difference in the greatest teams in history is that they had a captain, a leader, who was determined not to lose, that was passionately devoted to the cause of their team. We're in the midst of a series we're calling Pulling Together. We've talked about over the last few weeks, the last couple of weeks, we've got this week and next week, what it is as a church that we ought to be passionately devoted about doing together. Those things that get us up, those things that drive our lives, those things, if we're going to be successful, we need to be doing. We talked about in the first week about glorifying God. In the second week, we talked about leading people and that the people have always been at the center of what God is about. They're asking some difficult questions last week about how uncomfortable are we willing to be to reach people, to get to people that are outside or far away from God. And we're doing this based on our church purpose statement. And that statement is that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. If you've been paying attention, you realize that we've just been walking through this and given the biblical understanding and underpinnings for what we're doing. That we exist to glorify God. And that glorifying God is more than just walking in here on Sunday morning, although that's a part of it, and giving praise to His name. But it's how we live. It's how we do, church. It's how we operate. It's how we interact with the world. That we are to be salt and light in the world in which we live. Last week we talked about that leading people, that people are the center of it, that we ought to do whatever we can to see people come to Christ. People to interact with Christ, people to hear about Christ. But the point of us doing that is not just to get them into a building. The point of us reaching people is not just for them to write their name on a roll. The purpose of that is not just so we can say, look how many people we got in church this week. The purpose is that they would become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Passionately devoted followers. That we're making disciples. That we have a process of leading people to become the followers of Christ that will impact the world. What do you mean about disciple? Well, disciple has been said to be Someone who is a kingdom person that is living for God's kingdom. And that the goal of the church is to bring people from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity so that they're then able to replicate the process with someone else. That we're growing people into spiritual maturity. You see, the goal of our church is not just to have more members or attenders or givers. Although all of that would be great, right? Amen, there you go. The goal of God's kingdom is not just simply to have more citizens even. It's not just to get people in the door. The goal is to have men and women, boys and girls, who have been developed over time into proper representatives of the kingdom of which they are a part. That our goal is not just to have good Sunday school classes where people can have fun together in fellowship and talk about each other and with each other in that moment. It's not just to have people that have heard the stories of the Bible or even can recite them back to you. It's not just to have people that are aware of what God is doing in the world. The goal is to have people that are actively pursuing, actively following, actively going after What God has called us to do. so we're going to turn today to Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to look today at the only meeting we have after Jesus rose from the grave that he set up in advance. Now, he met all kinds of people. It tells us in the, in the Gospels, it tells us in the letters, that he met people, all kinds of people, after his resurrection. And that he went kind of on a 40-day tour of talking to people about what it meant to follow him. But this is a set meeting. It is a set place. It is a set time. It is an understanding that what is happening here is that this is happening because Jesus intended for it to happen. In fact... We know that what's happening here is that Jesus has said, I am going to put this meeting on the calendar. We're going to meet because of the significance of what's happening here. And we're going to talk about something very important. Now, how do we know that? You say, well, how do you know that? Well, it says the eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when you look at that in the original language and you understand the background, what that means is Jesus said, I need you to be here at this time and at this date for this purpose. Now you have to remember, Jesus was in his resurrected state. Which meant he didn't travel like everybody else traveled. Right? After the resurrection, they're all in a room. Jesus comes in the room. How does he get there? Through the walls, Right? He just appears. So Jesus says, I'm going to be here. And at that moment in time, when Jesus said, I'm going to be here, you went where he said to be. So they go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Let me just take a little sidebar for a moment. All right. It's easy to look at this and go, how in the world are you still doubting? Right. Right. I mean, what did these guys see? Jesus dead, Jesus alive. And we give one of them a particularly hard time about his doubts, right? Thomas, right? And we talk about how Thomas had to touch, had to feel. But what happened as soon as Thomas touched and felt? What did he do? He worshipped, right? He believed. Now, I don't know, we don't know who this is. We don't know who the disciples are that are there. But the 11 disciples, I mean, we don't know which of the 11 disciples there is still doubting. But what I want to say is, it's easy to give them a hard time about doubting when they've seen all that they've seen. Unless you consider your own life and wonder how many times have we doubted God's goodness for our life, doubted God's plan for our life, doubted God's providence for our lives. Even when we've seen all that we've seen. And so the question becomes, are you willing, even in the midst of doubts, to still worship? Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Go back to that just for a second, Steve. We're going to stay there for a second. All authority. He's basically saying, I'm in charge now. I'm the one that is in complete control of every situation. Now, here's the thing, okay? When Jesus left the Father, when Jesus humbled himself, when Jesus came to earth, he put himself in a trial period until his death and resurrection where the enemy tempted him on several occasions. Now, I want you to remember specifically one of the temptations of Jesus was what? That if he would bow down to Satan, what would Satan give him? Kingdoms of the earth. Jesus did not take that temptation. But he says to these guys. Now that it has been finished. Now that it has been accomplished. Now that it has happened. There is no doubt under heaven. By whom the authority to do whatever I want is held. Jesus has all authority. Not just God is an authority. He is. But Jesus you say, well, why does that matter? Because our world is perfectly fine with you talking about a belief in a general God. But when you talk about the heavenly father of Jesus, things get a little different. And what we have to remember is whether we want to now or in the future, whether you wanted to accept it now or you want to wait. The truth is, according to Philippians chapter two, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that what Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know if you've seen this or not. It's a little bit of discussion about people kneeling this afternoon for a flag or an anthem. Okay, and I don't want to. I don't want to have a conversation here about everybody's feelings because I don't want you to be passionately devoted about something other than the Word of God this morning. All right, and I know there's some passionate devotion there. But what I think is fascinating is. That while that's an important discussion to have, it pales in comparison of whether or not people have bent their knee to the only one that is in true authority. People say, well, I believe in God. Well, good. So do the demons. What do you think about Jesus? God's work in the world is is tied directly to Jesus. He has the final right to rule. Jesus has complete authority up there in the sweet by and by where one day we'll fly away to a glory land that is greater than any we know. But he also has the authority and the right to rule down here in the nasty here and now. He is in control. And when we... Decide to come under the authority of Jesus, we are coming under the authority of the one who has the ability to do something about the situation of the world in which we live. There is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. And so to tie yourself to the authority of any other person, any other organization, any other movement, any other political party other than Jesus is to tie yourself to something that does not have the power to change the world in which we live. And if we as a church are not tied to the authority and the power of Jesus, then we have tied our wagon to the wrong horse. All authority. Y'all know what that word all means? All. Every bit of it. Has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, Now you would expect what comes next to be pretty important. Amen? Amen? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. There's one. One Command in that sentence in the original language. There's one command. The rest of them are participles. If you go back to English class, participles are those things that describe the verb, those things that supplement the verb, those things that tell us how to work out the verb. But the one verb in that whole sentence is the phrase make disciples. It's one word in the original that means make disciples. Disciples. It's an imperative. It's a command. It is not a request. It is not a suggestion. It is not an option. It is the imperative of Jesus' final declaration to his disciples at the scheduled meeting he had with them to give them the most important thing they could understand. Make disciples. The original word there is mathetes, which means following in the footsteps of someone else. Becoming like someone else. I get this picture. Um, and it's happened with all of my kids. Um, uh, at some point in our lives when they decide they want to try on daddy's shoes. Right? So Ava did it recently. Right? And so my shoes are huge to them and they slide their feet in and they try to walk in my shoes. It's a symbolic picture of what kids often do, where they're attempting to walk in the shoes, in the place of their parents, to follow them. Now, they get older, and right now, Eli can't fit my shoes on his feet, because they're too small for him. Right? But that doesn't mean the symbolism's not there. In fact, one of the pictures of uh, a mathetes, of a disciple in that day, was one who would literally follow in the footprints of the one that was walking in front of them. And it says, our job, the authority of God, has been given to Jesus. And Jesus says, because of that, I'm asking you to make disciples. That the goal should be that we make people, that we are a part of encouraging people, showing people, teaching people, leading people to be like Christ. In their character and conduct, in their attitudes and actions, in the way they think, in the way they act, in the way they are. That they are a replica of Jesus. In a world dominated in the worldview of the enemy, Jesus planned to extend his authority through you and through me. I want you to think about this for a minute. Jesus has the right to rule on this earth. He could come back at any moment and establish his kingdom and be done with it. He told us last week in 2 Peter, one of the reasons he's not doing that currently is because he's being patient with us to see his people That he desires to come to faith. Come to faith. But it also shows us here. That part of the reason he is. Is because he has turned over the task. Of extending his authority. Into the world. By our making disciples in it. Put another way. You are the plan. To extend the authority of Christ. Throughout this world. You and I. And churches. And this church is the plan. That what he intends is a group of people so engrossed with their teacher, so lockstep with their teacher, so in the footsteps of their teacher, so ingrained in the teachings of Jesus, that when we encounter a world that is contrary to him, that we are significantly different in the way we approach life, and the way we think about it. And because of that, people are drawn to him. That we are intentional about reaching out to people that we see that are far from God. And as they see us live our lives on fire, with passion, with devotion, for Jesus, they become a part of the family of God giving their life to Jesus Christ and then asking, how do I become more like Him? Taking it back to first week we are the salt, we are the light and unless you are someone who is passionately devoted to the Savior then you're not a true close up disciple of Jesus You may have a long distance relationship, but you're not a close up disciple. And unless scripture teaches over and you are a close up disciple of Jesus, you don't participate in the benefits of his authority. We got a lot of people trying to live the Christian life as a long distance relationship with Jesus. They make a call every couple of days, weeks or months. And wonder why there's no power to live for the gospel in their lives. Do, do y'all remember before we had cell phones? Anybody remember that time? Last Sunday night, we had a great link together time, a great time. Families here, we we played a, a messy game called OMC that they play at Center Kit. And so when we got home, my family, we had to get all our clothes in the washer, right? It was one of those, don't go to your room to change. Like, we're dropping it. it we don't have a mud room. Y'all know what mud room We don't have one of those. We haven't been on HGTV yet, all right? We don't have one of those. We got a laundry room where there's a laundry right there. And so it was drop your stuff in there. We put all our stuff in there. And guess what got left? in my shorts pocket my phone about 30 minutes later I was like I don't know where my phone is and I started looking around and you know there are just sometimes when you have an extra premonition from the Lord and I was like you know where I bet that thing is I've had this particular phone for three years okay And so it was already in the final days of its existence because I'm convinced cell phone manufacturers put a date on the phone that it stops working well, right? And mine was long past that date. Now, that's complete conspiracy theory, but I'm going with it, all right? And so for two days, I didn't have a phone at all. Now, for somebody of my generation that is as technologically... um, Addicted as I am, I went back like a hundred years, it felt like. When I went to college, I didn't have a cell phone. And mom made me call her once a week at a specified time to have a conversation. Sunday evenings. And it was a one time a week kind of thing. Because you couldn't just get anybody anytime you wanted them. Like, remember those things we had answering machines? You remember we had those, right? I don't need to know if you still do. I'm just talking about when we did, all right? But you know what happened the moment I moved to college? I love my mom. I love my dad. But the moment I moved to college, our relationship changed. Because I wasn't seeing them every day. And I wasn't around them every day. I wasn't depending upon them for food every day. I wasn't contributing to the work of the house every day. It changed. You can't expect to have an intimate, up close, authority filled relationship with Jesus and keep him at an arm's distance all the time. If you want the benefits, you've got to be up close and personal. I heard this week one of my favorite preachers, my absolute favorite preachers, is Tony Evans. Tony Evans Oak Cliff Fellowship down in Dallas, Texas. I've had the opportunity to meet Tony. I've, I have picked him up from the airport at a time when he was speaking in Jackson and got to ride with him. And Tony Evans was telling this story this week about his son. His son, his name is Anthony. Anthony Evans is um, um, a, a contemporary Christian music artist, has a, a phenomenal voice. Uh, he often sings for Tony's... Uh, daughter, Priscilla Shire, who does women's events, and Tony, you know Anthony will sing. And so it's a whole family affair. And he said that he went to pick. His, his son called him and said, hey, Dad, I'm going to be landing at the airport. Could you come pick me up? He's like, sure, I'll come pick you up. And he said he walked in there, waited. And this was back, he said, when you could actually get into the area where you pick people up. You have to wait at baggage claim, you know. And so he's sitting there in the terminal, and he notices, you know, I'm waiting on my son. He said he's the third one off the plane. I'm like, awesome, All right, let's go, let's go to baggage claim. And he said, on the way to baggage claim, I just looked at him and says, no, you didn't. He said, because I knew what had happened. He said, to be third off the plane, on that particular plane, meant that he had sat in first class. And he said, I knew he did not have the standing, nor the finances to afford first class. He said... No, you didn't. And he said, my son just smiled at me and said, yeah, I did. He said, because I knew what had happened. Tony said he had walked up to the person at the airline counter and said, my name is Anthony T. Evans. And I'm a platinum member of your particular airline. Is there an opportunity that you might have an upgrade for me to first class today? And the woman typed in some stuff on her computer and said, well, Dr. Evans, we do have an upgrade for you. Tony said he used his relationship to me to piggyback on my authority to get my seat in first class. He said that doesn't work. If he's not my son, if he's not my son, they call that identity theft. But he's my son. And because he's my son, he gets the benefit of a close relationship with his father. Are you experiencing the benefit of a close relationship with your heavenly father through Jesus? That only comes to people that are passionately devoted followers of Jesus. And can I tell you something? The quality of a church is not determined by its size, by its scope of ministries, by the friendliness of its people, or by the increase of its budget from year to year. The quality of the church in biblical understanding is determined in its ability to make disciples. Not converts. Not just baptisms, although that's part of the process. But people who think more like, act more like, do more like than Jesus. And so the question becomes, well, how do we do that? It's right there in the text. If you look back at where we were in Matthew chapter 28, I told you there was one main verb, right? And that is to make disciples. But there are three participles that come off of the main verb. And those three participles tell us how it is that we make disciples. First of all, we go. As you go, make disciples. Don't stay. It's not a bunker mentality. It's not a come here mentality. It's not a we're going to do things here mentality. We talk about this the first week. It's a gather to scatter mentality. How do we get together? How do we live together in order that we might go to the nations? In order that we might go to our communities? In order that we might go to our neighborhood. There should be no question among those whom you spend your life on a regular basis about whom you belong to. About who it is that controls your life. And I'm not talking about just that I'm somebody chasing after God. Although that ought to be true of you. But I'm talking about the specific reality that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Not that you're a member of First Baptist Church. Shouldn't be the first thing on people's minds. The first people thing on people's minds about you should be that is someone. Whether I agree or disagree. Whether I'm offended or not. I believe and know that that person is a follower of Jesus. We go. It's a part of our lives. It's a part of who we are. It is the mission of our lives. And the second part of simple is there is not only go, but then baptize. Now we think of baptism very specifically about what happens in this baptistry. But the idea here is more of conversion that leads to a life change. In fact, the word baptize is going to blow your mind. It comes from the Greek word baptizo. It's crazy, isn't it? But here's what it was used of. I love this. It was used of die makers. And so when you were in that time, if you wanted your daughter to have a pink dress or a purple dress, you went out and you got the cloth, you kind of got it all together, and then you took it to a dye maker, and a dye maker would take his dyes that he had concocted, that he had worked up, that he had made, and he would take your cloth, and he would do what? He would... Immerse. There's a good word for you, right? He would immerse. It's a good Baptist word. Immerse. Put all the way in the dress, the cloth, whatever you had inside the dye. And when he pulled it up out of the dye, what had happened is the dye had bonded to the clothing in a way that it was permanently attached to each other. And you went from a plain dress to a purple dress or a pink dress. The first summer I ever spent working outside of... Um, School was a summer where I spent at Dyersburg Fabrics in Dyersburg, Tennessee in the Dye House. It's hot. I mean, it was always 20 degrees hotter in the Dye House than it was outside. And I worked there in June and July and the first two weeks of August. Now, I know that Dyersburg and Goodlettsville are two or three hours apart. Here's what I'll let you know about Dyersburg. It isn't any cooler and it's closer to the Mississippi River. Otherwise known as humidity levels are higher. But it was still a fascinating process for me. One of the days what I had to do was to be a quality control individual for them. And I had to just check the dye to make sure that it was coming out the color. So I had a swatch and I had to make sure it was coming out the color it was. And you would see this pure white garment go into what looked like a huge dryer, but was filled with dye. And when it came out, it had been completely transformed. There was a new union attached to that. It was reclassified in our system from plain to purple or pink or blue. It was no longer what it was. When we go, the purpose is to share our faith in such a way that people are no longer who they were. They have been reclassified. Their identity has been changed. And for you and for me, the question is, when you think of who you are, is the first thing that comes to mind. I am a child of God, a follower of God of Jesus we go we baptize and we teach not just information teach them to what obey live do it's not really taught until it's lived the goal is not merely knowledge it is application It's not just to be able to get good grades on a test. It's in order that it changes the way we live. We got a lot of Christians that got lots of head knowledge that hadn't done a thing with it in their lives. Imagine with me for just a moment that you're in the hospital right now and you've been told you've got to have major heart surgery in the morning. Doctor walks in to explain to you all that's going to happen in this major heart surgery. And he lists everything that's happened, going to happen in the surgery. He gives you the step-by-step. Step. You know how they help you to think through that. And he's a particularly good doctor at that. He gives you step-by-step-by-step. By step by step. Nothing is being left out. You get to the end and the first thing you think is, man, he knows his stuff. And you say to him, hey, doc, just a quick question. How long have you been doing this? And he says, well, tomorrow will be my first. But don't worry about it. I got A's in heart surgery class in school. Now, how many of you are going to go out of that conversation and go, Oh, okay, Doc, that's good, right? My thought would be, Hey, Doc, you got somebody that's maybe done this before. I don't really care if they got B's and C's if they did it and they've done it well. Right? It's not. It's not real until it's been applied. And you're not a follower of Jesus Christ until you have applied what he's asked you to do. So what does it look like? If we're to go, if we're to baptize, if we're to teach, what does it look like then when we become passionately devoted followers? We're going to close with this because I want to just ask you the question, as we list off these four things, is this true of you? Because here's the thing about being a passionately devoted follower of Christ and the thing about being a church that is aiming for passionately devoted followers of Christ. We will not have passionately devoted followers of Christ until we are passionately devoted followers of Christ. Discipleship is caught as much as it is taught. You see it, you understand it, you live it out together. To see what a passionate devoted follower looks like, I want to go just a couple of chapters later in the story. Acts chapter two. You don't have to turn there, it's going to be on the screen. But in Acts chapter two, verse forty two, it says They, that's the church. This is after Peter's big thing. They get thousands of people. Literally a mega church is born in a day. Come to faith. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You want to know what passionately devoted followers of Christ look like inside of church? First of all, A, they are filled with dynamic worship. Every day praising God. The idea we get here is they met on a daily basis. In homes, at the temple, and they praised God. Dynamic worship is the furnace for the spiritual life. Celebrating God for who He is and what He has done. There is one thing that your worship cannot be and be authentic worship. And that is apathetic. It can't be. You are not apathetic about anything you really care about in life. You're not apathetic about your family. You're not apathetic about politics for many of you. How do I know that? Because I see the debates that happen all over the place now. Many of us in this room are not apathetic about the teams that we follow. We're not apathetic about the careers that we have chosen. We're not apathetic about anything that means anything to us. And when it comes to worshiping God, you cannot be apathetic. Ho-hum. Whatever is, is. At the same time, you also come to a place where you celebrate God for who He is and what He's done. It's not about you. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your desire. It's not about your comfort. It's not about what you like. It's not about what you want. Dynamic worship has nothing to do with you. Nobody wanted to amen that there? Nothing to do... With you. Isaiah 26.8 is a verse that we have used many times in the last ten years. And it says, Yes, Lord, waiting on you, we wait for you. For your name, your renown are to the desire of our souls. We care about nothing but your fame. It tells us here that they met together for the breaking of bread. And that means to us, we're like, oh, that's the Lord's Supper. But the idea there is they were meeting regularly in dynamic worship. We said, how do you know it was dynamic worship? Because it carried forth what had just happened in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. And their worship was so dynamic in those two chapters that people asked him if they were drunk. Right? Isn't that the first line of Peter's sermon? Hey, I'm not drunk. It was dynamic. And here's what I will say, sometimes y'all get real uncomfortable about me talking about that kind of stuff. And I would say, if you get real uncomfortable talking about this, it's just me, your pastor, shooting straight with you. If you get uncomfortable with me talking about dynamic worship, that's a you problem. That's not a God problem or a me problem. You show me anywhere in scripture where it says, bring your half-hearted to God. Secondly, it's not just dynamic in worship. We see in this passage in 242 that a passionately devoted follower of Jesus is growing in the word. That scripture equips us for daily life and that mind is the key to that. Romans twelve two tells us that we become transformed by the renewing of our mind. And here's what I know about me. Here's what I know about you. Here's what I know about human beings in general. We are stubborn, obstinate, self-satisfied, self-assured people. And unless something breaks through the mind of our lives, we will not be changed. We think we got it figured out we think we got it together we think we know And yet scripture teaches us that the way we need to be transformed is by the renewing of our minds. And the way that our minds are renewed comes from the study and the practice of the Bible. You, me, we are bombarded on a daily basis with the ideas and worldview that is completely counter to our understanding of what God desires. And unless we are entrenched, unless we are engrossed in the word of God, we are going to believe the lies that the world is telling us and not understanding what God desires for us. There ought to be something inside you that's thirsting for the Word of God. Third, it tells us there that they devoted themselves daily to the teaching of the Word. Third, we see here, is life-changing fellowship. Notice there's no S on the end of fellowship. Not life-changing fellowships. This isn't about how good the ice cream is. This is about sharing our lives together. It says they met daily for fellowship. The brotherhood coming together. The Jerusalem church shared it all. It tells us in scripture, what did they share? They shared their lives. They shared their possessions. They had everything they had. They shared together. They didn't give 10% to the church. They gave whatever was needed. And the idea here is that we all, in the world in which we live, being bombarded daily on the outside, we need time to be together. Now this isn't the end goal. It's not just to get in a holy huddle, a, a community cluster of religious folks in order to help each other feel better and to bunker down. But this is to be a place where we are reinvigorated for the week that is ahead, for the times that are ahead, for the difficulties that are ahead. Jerusalem Church shared it all. Passionately voted followers are engaged in life-changing fellowship. We think in the culture in which we live, we have lost our need for one another. We think, we think that we don't need anybody but our little family. The true fellowship is a requirement for those of us who want to live passionately devoted followers of Jesus. Not just hanging out together, although that's part of it. It's not just, hey, we had a great time together. It's not even just serving together, it's sharing life together. The good, the bad. It's bearing one another's burdens, it's rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn. It's encouraging one another. It is telling somebody in your fellowship, in your group, you know what? You are doing things contrary to what God's word says. The church is a is a is a good place for us to talk about how political correctness is ruining parts of the world in which we live. But there are a lot of politically correct Sunday school classes as well. That never challenge each other in the word. Because they're afraid of how it will offend somebody. I don't intend for you to go into your Sunday school class and start airing your grievances right now. But I wonder how uncomfortable you'd be willing to be to be real with one another. Not the Sunday morning Christian facade of everything's okay. Or the the non- Um, non-deep prayer request moments where, yes, we share physical ailments. That's a part of what we do. Scripture commands that. But when's the last time in your Sunday school class someone shared a deep spiritual groaning that they have about what's happening in their life or their family? Maybe it's happening in every Sunday school class in this building. And if it is, then praise be to God. But my guess is there are some where it is superficial at best in the midst of that fellowship. It's not life-changing. Dynamic in worship. Growing in the Word. Life-changing fellowship. That's what a passionately devoted follower is a part of. And here's the last one, and then we're done. Pervasive prayer. Continual prayer. Always praying. When I thought about this point, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Finding Nemo. When Eli was little, it was his favorite movie, so I saw it approximately 1,432 times. Every trip we took for about two years, I heard the soundtrack in my head of Nemo behind me being played on the video thing in our car. But there's a part at the end of that where they're trapped almost, and they start saying to each other, Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, over and over and over again. And if we want to be the people that God has called us to be, if we want to be passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ, the thing that ought to reverberate in our head is just keep praying. Just keep praying. Pray without ceasing. Pray for your church. Pray for your family. Pray for those in your neighborhood who do not know Jesus. Pray for this church to come to a place where we are seeing us impact the world in which we live. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a significant way. Here's what's cool. When we hear about what happens in Acts 2.42. Acts 2.47 tells us. This isn't on the screen. But you can hear. Acts 2.47 says that. And they were. Daily the Lord was adding to their number. Daily. Now I don't know if you can do math real quickly. But if you added one person a day to this church. Over the next year. We would almost double in attendance. Because that's 365. In a leap year, it's 366. I guess we could add them all together and get 365 and a fourth, and then the last year just get the whole one, right? But the question is, are we living passionately devoted lives for the sake of Christ? And how uncomfortable are you willing to be to become a passionately devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to be real in the midst of your Sunday school class? Are you willing to be authentic there? Are you willing to challenge one another? Are you willing to reach out to other people through your Sunday school class? Not just depending on the church to take care of that. Are you going to take care of each other in times of need? Are you in the midst of that class willing to hear the word and apply the word and do the word? Are you willing to, even if it's uncomfortable... Ask the Lord to show you what dynamic worship would look like in your life. Are you willing to put the time in that it takes to study God's word more than just I'm reading my Sunday school lesson for the week, but diving in to God's word? How uncomfortable are you willing to become to be to become a passionate follower? And then the second question, and then we're done. How uncomfortable are you willing to be to see others become passionately devoted followers of Jesus? What if it meant giving up your Sunday school room? Oh, wait a minute, Pastor. we talked about lots of stuff. That may have gone too far right there. What if it meant, we talked about last week, opening your home? What if it meant changing how you saw what discipleship was? What if it meant mentoring somebody one-on-one? Even somebody that was not just like the ones that you would normally do in having mentor relationships? How uncomfortable are you willing to be to see others become passionately devoted? There's one last thing I want to say before we're done. The great thing about that great commission in Matthew 28, when he says to go, to baptize, to teach, he gives them a promise at the very end that makes it all, all doable. Because on our own, we can't do any of that. But he says at the end, And lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. He'll never leave us, He'll never forsake us, He is with us. And as we go to make passionately devoted followers of Jesus, and as we go to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus, we go in the power and the authority of Jesus. Let's pray together.